Hey everyone, Tim Kay here, host of the Veterans Project podcast, founder of the Veterans Project and the Caregiver Project as well. I'm here to talk to you today about this incredible podcast we have coming up. It's a two-part series on a legend of the Marine Special Operations community who just so happened to be the first black Marine recon officer as well, Major James Capers Jr. You're not going to want to miss a single word of this podcast. Now, this podcast is accompanied by the project, which is premiering today around the same time. So you'll be able to read along with that as well. Every single word that this man speaks is just truly that of a legend. So I want you to take the time to really ruminate on this, to really soak this in, absorb all of this material because it is special and he is one of our most legendary. Now, I would not have been able to do this podcast without this incredible organization or this project. I wouldn't have been able to do either one without this incredible organization, the Marine Reconnaissance Foundation which I have personal experiences with, and they are just an incredible organization. I am honored to have them sponsoring this podcast and project. The Marine Reconnaissance Foundation, or MRF, is committed to serving the Marine Reconnaissance community and its veterans by providing assistance to active duty, retired, and former members of the recon community. The foundation aims to provide immediate emergency and reoccurring deliberate support for the reconnaissance marines and special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen of all generations and their families. In addition, the MRF strives to share and perpetuate the storied lineage, history, and traditions of the reconnaissance community. The MRF is a registered national nonprofit, 501c3 organization, who is able to provide annual reoccurring programs and emergency support because of the generosity of large and small businesses and patriotic citizens and their families. If you're interested in donating to the MRF, please visit their donation portal on reconfoundation.org. That's reconfoundation.org or at the link in our description via PayPal. Visit reconfoundation.org to learn more about this incredible organization and all they are doing for the Marine Recon community. There are lives so well lived that the encapsulated measure of their influence and stature is truly almost incomprehensible if we look at the scope of where they came from and where they ended up. Who rises up from the ashes of the downtrodden, the persecuted and neglected sex of our society? How would that story read? Who would that human be? You know, there was a boy from Bishopville, a son of sharecroppers, whose story seems so unlikely that many have called it a legend. But we assure you that every word is completely factual. In all actuality, the reality of the story is probably more powerful than the tale itself. A young black child grows up in those oppressed and subjugated segments of a nation that's supposedly built on the principles of freedom for all, but not living up to its foundational promises. Does that child one day become a man and rise up in passionate vitriol against the man, becoming a pinnacle of revolution and revolt? Or does he tackle those problems from a different angle? This podcast is not meant to act as a social commentary, but merely a legacy piece on one American's example of the reality of ultimate persistence against all odds. James Capers Jr. was born to be a Marine. In fact, in a 2011 speech, General Paul Lefebvre referred to him as the father of Marine Special Operations as he was inducted into the Commando Hall of Honor at MacDill Air Force Base. His courageous actions that day in Vietnam, which are once again under review for the Congressional Medal of Honor, are simply a microcosmic example of his entire life. 
you know, they are also indicative of a man who showed up as the prototype of what it truly means to be a special operations warrior. He has constantly lived with a heart of pure purpose, incessantly persevering through every single life obstacle, whether systemic or constructed by those around him to hinder his meteoric rise to the ranks of the United States Marine Corps. Where some may have seen a closed door as a roadblock, Major Capers voraciously kicked those doors down in pursuit of something greater than himself. Although the Major has been robbed by the Marine Corps time and time again in his quest for our nation's highest military honor, we all know the reality of the matter and the man. We know that this Marine has been one of our elite examples of what it truly means to be a Marine. And we are all better as a nation for him having lived to serve. Every impeded step towards success that Major Capers took in a construct built in expectancy of his failure was a step forward in the advancement of freedom for all of us. You've already said enough, though. Here he is with an education on overcoming Major James Capers, Jr. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay, and I'll be your host. With me is a wonderful man, Major James Capers. Major, I appreciate you being with me. Thanks, Tim. So, you know, we want to go back through your whole life and talk about where you grew up, Bishopville, and, you know, talk a little bit about life growing up, uh, and then, you know, talk more about the combat and move into your time in Vietnam, but also your time in getting out. So if we could just start from your childhood and how you grew up, that would be awesome. Obviously, you just covered my whole life right there. But, uh, yeah. He's a comedian, too. Yeah. Well, looking back at my childhood, some days were extremely pleasant. But as I grew older and looked back in my past and realizing they were very difficult days because of uh, racism, Jim Crow, and things of that nature, as a child, you don't see the horrors of Jim Crow or sharecropping because your parents take care of you and you see the goodness of the world when you're out picking cotton and cropping tobacco and feeding the hogs and picking the fruits. Those are the things I remember. And they were not bad things, you know, in terms of milking the cows and trying to learn to ride uh, horses. We had a horse named Big Red and I was always scared of Big Red. Uh, they'd put me on Big Red, and and he'd throw me off. But I kept trying. I never did learn to ride Big Red. I don't think he liked me very much, but those are the, <laughs> the things I remember in the South. Just keep trying. I learned a lot of things in the South, but you know, relatively speaking, during the studying and realizing uh, the Jim Crow laws and how hard my parents had it, it wasn't a pleasant time for them. I do realize what they had to go through living the life of a sharecropper. I had four brothers which died in early childhood of uh, childhood diseases. Four of us survived once we got to Baltimore. My father did a little time on the chain gang, what they used to call a 
penal system for a crime he didn't commit. Wow. But uh, yeah, but that's the way it was in the South. And of course, a lot of uh, African-American men were hung because of minor infractions of what they call the laws. But he left, I'm not sure how he got to Baltimore, but he left and went to Baltimore, got a place for us to stay and sent for us. And my mother and my sister and my two brothers, we end up in Baltimore and join him. Mm-hmm. We stayed in Baltimore until I joined the Marines as a, I was about 17 and left and when I was about 18, go to boot camp at Paris Island, South Carolina. But the South was always prevalent in my mind. Mm-hmm. I never forgot it uh, because I had gotten sick, probably the same diseases that killed my other elder siblings. But there was a white family that took me in. And these stories were told to me, my aunts and uncles who were still alive then, that this family, which I don't remember, took me in and cared for me. And whatever the disease I had, which I probably would have died from, helped me survive. So that was always a big thing in in my mind as I grew up. Who were these people? It was a wonderful thing for me to remember that everybody's not bad. I have no idea what the names were, where they were from, but sometimes as I grew older, I tried to remember something about them that that might help me remember who these folks were. But when I came back to my family, I was told that, well, I was talking, I was relatively young, but they told me that I was speaking something, a language that they didn't really understand. So I must have picked up something from this family. Wow. My father was a wanted man for the rest of his life. Wow. He changed his name. I was a part of that, and I watched that as I grew up. I was lucky because he told me a lot of those wonderful stories about the South and the hunting and the fishing and the things that was part of his life, the things that you know, that he saw and he enjoyed. It was designed to make me feel comfortable. And he that's life that he lived until he got in trouble. He loved that life. I loved him. He gave me a mission before he passed away to take care of the family. I was the youngest. And he said, you're my youngest child. So now it is your job to keep the family going and you take care of them. Mm. And I did that. I buried each one of my brothers and sisters all of my aunts and uncles. I was able to at the time. I had been in the military and I was doing relatively well. So I followed his instructions or his wishes. And he died uh, at age 75. No one in my family ever lived beyond age 75. I'm at age 82 now. I'll be 83 in a few months. You've made it seven years longer already. What do you remember about your dad, your father, as far as him teaching you? Obviously, he taught you perseverance. I know the Marine Corps gave you a lot of that, but a lot with these, a lot of Marines have that perseverance already built in from mm-hmm. when they were growing up. What do you mm-hmm. remember about your dad? I remember, remember a lot about my father because he, on my way to boot camp, and I talked about that in the documentary in the book I wrote. If 10 men starts up a flight of steps, if only one makes it to the top, you believe that you'll be that man and it will be so. In other words, he was telling me that no matter how hard it is or how hard you have to struggle, if you believe in yourself, you can make it to the top. And I carried those words with me all the way through boot camp and all the way through life. And he didn't say much about the horrors. He didn't tell me how he got out of South Carolina and got to Baltimore. He didn't tell me how hard it was to leave his wife and four young children behind. You know, I think he was trying to basically spare me from some of the horrors that he experienced. 
And it was just such a wonderful time when he come here to live with me. And we sat around a table and, uh, you know, I had to cry sometime because uh, he would spare me the, the hardships. It was always something positive. Wow. Uh, about, he was a positive man, even though, you know, he'd had a hard time. And that went on to help you in the jungles of Vietnam. Yeah, certainly, exactly, right. exactly. What do you What do you remember about your mother and how she was? Wonderful woman. Yeah, uh, I'm a mama's boy. <laughs> I remember hanging around my mom, holding on to her apron. She loved me. I was the last. I was the youngest child. She was wasn't an educated woman, but she was a mother. She was mama, mm. and I called her a mama. Until the day she died, wow. she'd scrounge up monies from somewhere to send me to the movies until I got old enough to, uh, you know, sell newspapers and make my own living. I have pictures of her, too. She was a wonderful woman wow. and a good mother. She sometimes had to rein in my old man because <laughs> he got to Baltimore. He was sort of a rascal. Mm. Do you feel like they instilled those Christian values oh, in you yeah. pretty early on? My mama took me to church every Sunday. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You told me one particular story yesterday mm. about your dad, about mm. um, a white man coming into the house. Mm. Do you mind, do you mind relaying that story to yeah, me? Yeah, that's true story. It's kind of scary, but, yeah. you know, we uh, had a little small house in Baltimore. We had a little pot belly stove on the first floor. You put wood and coal in there, coal oil, and it was how the way we heated the house. And at night, we uh, closed the uh, the stove down, and we'd all go to bed and put on extra clothing or whatever it was because we didn't have any le- electricity. So we come down one morning. I guess my old man was going to start the fire up, and there was this guy sitting there in a chair not too far from the fireplace. He was sitting, just sitting there. It was a white guy. And my father come down and saw him sitting there, and he asked him, what are you doing in my house? And he says, I don't know how I got in here, but I was tired, hungry, and I was cold. And my father, who was a big man, looked down at him, and he reached in his pocket and pulled out 75 cents. And he gave it to this person and said, you go get you some food and try to warm yourself up, but don't come back in my house. If you come back into my house again, I'll snatch the breath out of your heart. Now, snatch the, snatch the breath out of your chest. Wow. One of the most frightening things thing I ever heard. Uh, how do you snatch the breath out of his chest? The way he said that, as a child, I'm looking at this, I figured that if this person come back into the house, my father would, you know, not turn the other cheek. No. He was scared, kind of scary. But the, the, the kindness of him giving this person he didn't know 75 cents and said, go get you some food, warm yourself up. I thought that was the epitome of humanity. Hmm. As much as my father had wrong things done to him, he was doing the right thing. I learned from that. I learned from that. Didn't matter what color he was or where he come from. And 75 cents back then was a lot. Yeah. Yes, sir. As a child, I learned that uh, my father's a good man. He was a good man. You know, what's funny is those values really yeah. made their way into your life and yeah. all his teachings, you know, his comedy, his yeah. sense of humor, yeah. but perseverance, honor, yeah. courage, yeah, all those things made their way into your life. He had you, them all. He had them all. And I inherited them all. Mm, that's awesome. And I tried to emulate everything that he told me as I grew and had a career in the military. Even when I was in the military, 
you know, as, as a commanding officer, I tried to instill in my troops those values that I'd learned from my father and from some of the senior military officers and enlisted men that I was privileged to serve with. One is sit, sitting here now, uh, as I told you, I had a, I have a tendency to look at him because it's Sergeant Yerman, and he's the one, if it had not been for him, I wouldn't be here today. He is the sergeant. He just a great guy and reminds me a lot of those men and women who sacrifice so much for other people. What do you remember? When do you remember uh, race being being recognized for the first time? When do you first remember recognizing I, I never knew that. I, did, <laughs> I didn't grow up with that in mind mm. because I didn't see that. When I got to Baltimore, I worked for a Jewish grocer, uh, Mr. Phil was his name, and he had a grocery store on, my, on a corner. And I used to work there for him when I got out of school. He had those strange markings on his arm. You know, he'd come from Germany. Apparently he'd been one of the Jewish folks who were, you know, had the Nazi marks on, on his arm. And he told me some of those stories. I don't remember those stories now. Mr. Phil was another person I learned so much from. You know, back in those days, this was a predominantly black community. And I had a, a chance to see his kindness. I see a mother come in there with a couple of children and tell Mr. Phil, my husband didn't get paid this week, or my husband is on, on strike or whatever. And he would say to me, J.C., uh, take Miss So-and-so around the store and, and get her what she needs and bring it up here to the counter. I'm almost in tears. Wow. I'm almost in, I learned from that. Mm. This was a small grocer, and he was helping the community out. We didn't have a lot of African-Americans in that community at that time. So most of them there was on hard times. Mm. And a lot of them got welfare checks and things of that nature during that era. My father would never accept welfare, never got a welfare check. Wow. He would never do that. No, that was, that was, that was my dad. Mm. He didn't believe in that. Wow. But there were other people who were having a hard time. And Mr. Phil was there. He was the, the person that you went to when all was lost. And those are the things that I remember. And I'm sure in Nazi Germany, uh, he learned enough from that too. If you've got a problem, you go to Mr. Phil. Wow. That's awesome. What yeah. a staple. Yeah. What do you, what do you remember about your, time in choosing to join the Marine Corps. Obviously you'd had a, you grew up in Bishopville and then you moved to Baltimore. Yeah. What on your path made you decide that you wanted to be a Marine? I was a Patriot and I was there during World War II. I remember when the war was over, I remember uh, the uh, floodlights coming over, air raid, air raid wardens coming to the neighborhood and making you turn your lights out. So we were taking precautions. And I remember when World War II was over in Europe, there were so many people out in the streets. They were celebrating and hugging everybody. And I was just out with the crowd, didn't really know, you know, the meaning of it. The war was over. Then I saw the newspapers. You know, I could read at that time, Victory in Europe and some other things that said. Because I'd read about the war in Europe and I knew about Hitler and the whole bit. But now the war was over. What does all that mean? And then the troops started coming home. I remember the troop trains. They were coming home with uh, different cities. They would come, freedom trains. They had American flags on them. Soldiers were on them. They'd come through the cities and people would go out and uh, wave to them. And all these flags and the soldiers would be there waving to folks. And they went from city to city. 
Wow. And I remember them coming through Camden Station where I left for boot camp at Camden Station. But it was also patriotic. But I also heard people cry when they got the telegrams that your son or father had been killed during the war. Through the years as I grew to be a teenager, I knew that this was a great country and it needed to be defended. And all of the things that we heard on the radio didn't have TV at that time, but you had war correspondents broadcasting right from the battlefield and how important it was for us to uh, defend the country. And when you turn 18, you had to register for the draft. They had a draft back in those days. I went down and got my card, and, uh, but I was going to you know, join it. I was in high school, and I was going to join the service anyway. But when I was in high school, the Marine recruiters and Army, Navy, and Air Force, they all came over and gave their pitch. And the Marine came in dress blues, and boy, he looked like he had tons of medals, and he was, seemed like the most in-charge guy there. <laughs> Those Marine Corps dress blues will yeah, do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you. And he said, you know, this isn't for everybody, but we're the best, and, you know, he— Talked to, you know, the stuff I used to talk years ago. We are the best there is and, you know, the whole bit. And, and I figured, hey, this sounds pretty good. <laughs> I, I like the uniform. I like what he says. And, and so, we, me and my buddy, uh, we joined the military and uh, we talked about joining the Foreign Legion just as a joke, but what is it? No, let's join the Marine Corps. That's probably tougher than the Foreign Legion anyway. <laughs> so we joined and went off to Paris Island and made our fortune as Marines. Mm. We lost him about 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Paris Island was the only place where they were sending uh, African-American Marines, right? Well, they weren't allowed to come into Marine Corps until 1942. Wow. A place called Moffat Point. Right. And it's still there now. Right down the road from here. Yeah, Moffat Point, and they've got um, memorials out there to those guys from uh, World War II. There was 20,000 African-Americans who joined uh, the Marine Corps. Uh, up until that time, you couldn't join until I think uh, Eleanor Roosevelt asked the president, why isn't African-Americans allowed to join the Marine Corps? And that took care of that. Mm. And in 42, they started recruiting, and a lot of them were not allowed to fight with the 1st Division because there were still suspicions whether they could had enough courage or this or that. A lot of those guys did very well. They put them in separate battalions. Mm. A lot of them were artillery men, initially cooks and bakers, but they proved themselves. Uh, they fought in Guadalcanal all the way through the Pacific. And I, I think a few years ago, President gave that the Marine survivors from World War II, gave them the gold medal. Wow. And the ones, uh, you know, the ones who were gone, we gave the gold medals to their wives. Wow. Uh, I was lucky enough to to help find those ladies, the widows, and I bought the medals for them out of my pocket. Wow. Yeah. Uh, those Marines as forefathers to you meant a lot to your service? Yeah, I knew uh, Hash Mark Huff, one of the first guys that joined, kind of scary guy. Yeah. And it was a quite, a, quite a few guys that come in during the World War II. I'm sorry, Hash Mark Johnson okay. and Edgar Huff. Now, Huff was six feet six. Oh, wow. And he had a very, unfortunately, a very light voice. And I was like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you get over here. But, it, you know, instead of being that gruff voice, he yeah. had a very light voice. Surprised kinda, you coming out yeah, of his mouth. Kind of kind of comical. Yeah. But he was the first Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps. Wow. Nice guy. I remember him being a battalion Sergeant Major. And uh, he called me in the back of a tent one time and, told me about World War II, 
and they said that they were in uh, amphibious landing boats getting ready to make a landing, and they didn't give me any ammunition, what he called a decoy. They made a Japanese think that they were going to be landing, and they were just going to be a decoy. And the other guys landed, but the, the ones, the African-American troops didn't have any ammunition. Now, I don't wow. know how that happened, but it was, wasn't a good story. Mm. But he told me about those stories. Uh, I was a sergeant then, and his battalion commander was inspecting my troops. And while he was inspecting the troops, he called me in the back of this tent and started telling me about World War II mm. and Korea, passing it on. And like I pass it on to my guys and not necessarily just the black guys, you know, because at that time, the Marine Corps was integrated in 1949 when they were allowed to go to the regular boot camp, either in San Diego or in uh, Paris Island. So I joined in 1956, mm -hmm. and a lot of the guys who went through boot camp were still there. Uh, they taught me a lot of things, a little bit hard, I thought. Some of these guys were really scary because us young guys, we didn't know anything, and they wanted us to succeed. So they put us through the ringer, and they just instilled to me anyway because I was not a large guy, but some of these guys were huge. I would have got those guys from, but I was told that the recruiters would have the guys line up and they would take the ones they thought was best suited for the Marine Corps. And he took the big guys. Mm. When I came through in the 56, Korean War was over and they were kind of taking what they could get. And I had a high school diploma and I was about average height and size. So they took me, didn't do very well initially, but I caught on, mm. I caught on. Yeah. So when so Vietnam had not kicked off by the time you joined. No, Vietnam had kicked off in '54, but the okay. French was there. That's right. Yeah, in China didn't be in food. They didn't do very well there, yeah. and they tried to get Eisenhower to give them 15 million dollars to continue the war, and Eisenhower said no. So the French uh, backed out of Vietnam, and then we got conned into uh, to helping the Vietnamese out. Mm. We started arriving there. In 1964, when they started sending Army Special Forces in there, advisors, in 65, the Marines went in with a heavy battalion. They did operation like Operation Starlight, and uh, they had credit for something like 600 and some kills. I saw some of the guys from Operation Starlight. We got there in 66 uh, as a third force. I joined a group called Third Force Recon Company, which was specially designed to go to Vietnam. Mm. How did you come about joining that? It was a new organization, and I had served three years in First Force Recon Company. I was an old Marine pathfinder. We jumped in ahead of the troops and set up landing zones and cleared minefields for the troops to land. But I did three years with that and, and you know, spent some time overseas, did some time in Philippines and one for Formosa. But some of the islands, we were doing some hydrographic surveys on the beaches. Mm. Uh, we were headquartered in Okinawa, but we spent 13 months over there. And after that was over, coming home, the, uh, the Russians had brought some nuclear weapons into Cuba. This is a well-known story. And mm. President Kennedy, who was president at that time, uh, came in when Eisenhower was president, and Kennedy was now president. And it was a big battle between him and Nixon, and, and Kennedy won. Kennedy uh, decided that uh, he would put some advisors in 
I don't remember the president of, uh, of Vietnam was. And some of this stuff goes in, I can't remember everything, but we decided to go in and help the Vietnamese people out. First as advisors and some of those guys were killed and we sent in some of the Marines and, and escalated. I think we ended up with something like 500,000 servicemen in Vietnam at that time. Mm. Then we started, uh, you know, the retrograde and brought them out and the North Vietnamese swept down and uh, took over, took South, South uh, Vietnam over. There was uh, 16 million in South Vietnam and 14 million in uh, North Vietnam. Wow. But, uh, and we thought we were going to win the war by attrition. If we just fought them off and killed more of them that they sent down, then we'd be victorious. And there were some that wanted to go ahead and send two or three Marine divisions into North Vietnam, but that didn't happen either. But they waited us out. We came in uh, with the CIA and with the Marines and uh, different organizations. We did some bombing, but all of that didn't help us. We had this psych psychological warfare going on, but they persevered. Mm. And, you know, we tried the peace treaties and they didn't want the peace treaties. Uh, they said, no, the Americans got to go. Mm. And uh, we kept building up and building up. And we lost 55,000 that was killed during that war. I heard somebody say the other day that uh, uh, the virus has killed over 100,000 people. Now we've killed more in this virus than we lost in World War II and Korea and, and Vietnam. Mm. So uh, it's a grim thought. Yeah. But it, to us, it was hard. Uh, we had to fight and endure the losses and the tears, of course, we, the tears now because of the virus, but it was hard on our country and because the country was divided. Mm -hmm. There were some who didn't think we should be there and they rioted in the streets and they protested and then they blamed us. They blamed Sergeant Yerman and myself for not winning the war. Mm -hmm. uh, we came home, they said nasty things about us. They threw things at us. And they blamed us for being the first to lose the war. Well, we didn't lose the war. We didn't win it. We didn't go there to, to win it. We went there to win the hearts and minds and to, you know, to stabilize the governments. President Nixon said he's going to bring everybody home. So he did. Yeah. And uh, from there on out, we became this, the generation who didn't come home like the, the Army did and the Marines did on those freedom trains. Mm. Yemen, Sergeant Yemen and I came home in a medevac plane hmm. in the middle of the night, and they put our, our ambulance cots on the ground. I remember him singing God Bless America. He was a patriot. We were all patriots. Nobody reached down to, to shake our hands or to say, welcome home. How did you feel about that when you got back? What was the feeling for you? I was a patriot, part of the deal. Hmm. But I was hurt personally because... We lost a lot of good men over a lot of my good friends, not necessarily all of mine in my unit, but in different units. Mm. You know, Marine Corps is a family. We eat, we sleep, we fight. If necessary, we die as a family. And when you lose somebody who will cook or baker and artillery, that's still a Marine. Yes, sir. You know, uh, we were lucky. We didn't lose that many in our group, but one is one too many. Yes, sir. What do you remember about when you first got on the ground in Vietnam? What was the feeling for you? Scared. Yes, sir. <laughs> for my troops, not so much for me, yeah. because I was an old grunt. I had 10 years in at that time. I'd been in combat before in Lebanon. Yeah. I fought in the mountains of Lebanon. So I was seasoned as a staff sergeant. And shortly after that, they made me an officer. 
all the officers in my unit when you kill the wounded or whatever, you know. And so I was given a promotion from staff sergeant to second lieutenant and uh, five minutes. Wow. Yeah. They read my, raised my hand and the colonel commissioned me as an officer and a gentleman. So battlefield commission. I never went to officer's training, never spent a day in officer's training. Wow. What, what do you think were some of your, do you remember some of your hardest missions and some of those missions that you went on where you just didn't feel like there was a great chance of survival or great danger out there? I think a lot of them didn't look good at first, but I had good people. I was telling you about Sergeant Yerman. He went from what corporal and all the way to Sergeant and became my platoon Sergeant. As long as you had good men, you knew it would stand beside you. And he did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he helped me get on there on the helicopter on our, on the last mission when we were all wounded, lost my war dog. And, oh, that's pretty well documented now. Mm-hmm. But the, the guys that were with me all were wounded, and uh, we survived. That was probably our uh, deadliest mission. Without my corpsman, probably a several would have bled out. The guy who was running point for me, Nicolo, he lost his right leg, and Stanton lost a kidney, and uh, of course I was hit pretty bad. That was probably our most dangerous mission because that was our last mission, and and because of that mission, uh, I was given uh, a recommendation for the Congressional Medal of Honor, mm. and that was uh, turned down. I was given a Silver Star instead of the Medal of Honor, but that is now moving forward. You know, they're going to try it again through the Navy Board of Directions, corrections. But that's where we are right about now. We were talking a little bit about you going to Vietnam and and how they had pushed that, pushed back on that Medal of Honor uh, nomination. Can you take us back to some of those missions leading up to the mission where you got the uh, got nominated? I made a ship bottom search of the aircraft carrier that carried us over because the USS Card had been blown up. A year or so before, so we were worried about uh, mines in the harbor there. So we got the mission, and the ship was almost a thousand feet long. And I took my divers down, and uh, we checked the bottom of the ship. It was a dangerous mission. I'm thinking back, looking back on, I was a dive master, and uh, one of my guys come a uh, loose from his buddy line, and there was a, a school of uh, tiger sharks, Army Special Forces. And some seals had a base there on the beach. While we were in the water, they were supposed to not drop any food in the harbor because the sharks would come out to feed on the garbage from the ships. And uh, somewhere along the line, our ship didn't tell the Army and the Navy that we were in the water. And so the garbage scouts would not drop food or drop garbage. And all the tiger sharks just showed up. You know, these were vicious sharks. They were about 8 to 10 feet long. And one of my guys got loose from his buddy line and was drifting towards the sharks. So the best thing I could do was figure out how to get him back. Now, collectively, we got him back. He wasn't eaten up by the sharks, but it was kind of uh, scary. So I secured the, uh, we didn't find any mines. Under the water, the bottom of the ship, wire mesh uh, that come loose under the bottom of the ship that was used to keep things going up into the into the bottom of the ship and coming into the ship itself. But that had rotten away coming across the Atlantic and down through the Indian Ocean, Suez Canal. Took us 30 days to get there. So obviously a lot of that had worn away. And I was concerned that some of my guys might get sucked up into that vent there. 
So I secured the dive, and uh, we got uh, almost eaten up by the shark swimmer. And we got them all back aboard ship, didn't lose anybody. And that was one of our first missions. And we did that once in Nha Trang. Then we moved on down to Da Nang, and we did another ship out of search. We moved on to Okinawa, and we spent some time training in a northern training area, which is where the Marines had fought the Japanese in World War II. And then we went on to uh, to Vietnam in Operation Deck House 2, 3, and 4, amphibious missions. Then we moved on down to Fubai, and we did missions there, ran missions, and we did a, another diving operation there. A young Marine had been killed, and his body had been blown off in the water into the uh, Songbo River by a mine. My mission was to go and uh, find the body. One of my guys found his body. It was Doc Burwell, who was a Navy SEAL, uh, attached to me, and he uh, he's my assistant dive master. He found what was left of this kid, and while we were down there, we come across... Uh, a bunch of unexploded ammunition, I mean, large projectiles. So we started bringing this stuff up. We brought over 230 rounds of unexploded ammunition up and give it to the uh, EOD guys. It took us two days to clear that river of all the explosive stuff that was there. I'm sure they would have used it for booby traps and those type of things. It was put there by the, you know, by the VC and NVA. About a half the day, it was, the water was cold, the river was swift, dirty, smell rotten but we got in the water to get this kid one of my guys said about halfway through the dive you know i was a staff sergeant. i'm not sure if it was a lieutenant might have been a lieutenant ran kind of quick to, for me i went from staff sergeant to lieutenant but at that time i think i was lieutenant and uh, one of the guys says uh, lieutenant i think uh we might want to call it off because we hadn't found his body yet we might want to let this one go and I told him we got a Marine. We hadn't found a Marine yet. So we got a Marine in this water. And we don't leave anybody behind. Uh, we're going to find this boy. And we're going to send him home. And we're going to stay here until we get him. And, and shortly after that, Doc Burwell found him. And uh, we got all the ammunition up, got his body, wrapped him up, sent him home to his parents. And then, you know, I went back to the base and continued patrolling. And we just ran so many patrols four and five day patrols. A lot of them we made combat on or contact on. What was the hardest part of fighting the enemy on those patrols? What what did you find the toughest about fighting the NVA and fighting you I guess you ran into the Viet Cong as well. Mm -hmm. What was the toughest part about fighting that enemy? Well I had known about the NVA and the Viet Cong and the, you know I'd studied guerrilla warfare for a long time. You know, so I knew a lot of their tactics with punji snakes and booby traps and those type of things. And we had, we studied that when we went through the guerrilla warfare school up in Okinawa. So I knew the basics of why they were fighting, what their goals were, and how they intend to, you know, demoralize the Americans and make us go home. They didn't make us go home. We had good soldiers, good Marines, good sailors there, and they believed in why they were fighting. I'm not sure if they thought they were fighting for the country or they were fighting for their friends. And, uh, you know, we're buddies. Uh, all of us pulled together. I was very successful working with the Navy SEALs. And you what they used to call the UDT, Underwater Demolition Teams. Uh, the SEALs came along. They did pretty good. Uh, then Special Forces, they had bases out there and they helped 
work with the uh, the villages. And uh, so we worked a lot with those guys. It was more or less an armed forces thing. The Air Force helped us out a lot. So uh, there was no, as I could see, I guess I want to say there was no real prejudice. Uh, you know, the Marines, sometimes we like to think we're the best, but there was none of that going on. Uh, we helped each other. If I needed something, I could go to the Army, and they would say, yeah, sure, we'll help you out. Uh, they gave us stuff that they had because we didn't get a whole lot. You know, we were at the end of the food chain line, uh, food chain. So uh, Typical Marines, not as yeah, much equipment, right? <laughs> yeah. So the Army gave us a lot of things that we needed. I made friends with some of those guys at Special Forces. I'd been around for a long time, and I didn't have that rah, rah, rah attitude. I was trying to get what I could get for my guys. And I was lucky enough to be friends with a lot of those guys from the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines. But I'd been in 10 years that time, and I was a new lieutenant. You know, I went, never went through OCS or the basic school. So, and a lot of the guys I knew, old senior chiefs and Navy chiefs and Army uh, sergeant majors, and I got along well with them. And they, uh, you know, and when I became a, a boot lieutenant, you know, which I was, they, I took a little heat from those guys. Uh, you know, here comes this boot lieutenant. <laughs> and, uh, but I took it easily because, you know, they were right. I was a boot lieutenant. I don't have, didn't have a history as an officer. But they kidded me a lot about, you know, being so junior. But they were all helping me out. You know, you're lieutenant now, so we know you don't know a damn thing. <laughs> so we better come over here and we'll help you out. So the Army took me in. And uh, they, they better me. help you with directions. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't lieutenant, spell lost without LT. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so you know how that goes. Lieutenant's sake. Uh, even though I'd been in for a long time, I was very experienced. But when I got to be a lieutenant, didn't matter. I was a boot lieutenant, and experience went out the oh, window. Oh yeah, they gave me a hard time. <laughs> they gave me a hard time. Wow. Here comes this boot. <laughs> and the army guys was hard on me. <laughs> you know, uh, when I went over there to get something, they always. They'd give me what I needed, but I had to go through some stuff <laughs> with those guys. Air Force the same way. They they had all remembered you when you were enlisted, huh? Before? Yeah. yeah. They uh, and some of them say, you know, I wouldn't accept a, a lieutenant. What are you doing? Getting demoted? You went from <laughs> staff sergeant to second. What's wrong with you? They kidded me a lot, but they were still helping me, and I was learning as an officer. What do you What do you remember about? being a leader in those situations where the bullets started flying and, and you're keeping your men in order. Obviously you're in recon units, so you've got some very proficient men yeah. under you, but what do you remember you were trying to impress upon them in those, in those well, moments? You see, I didn't have to because I trained them. When I got there, I had three men in the company. It was a new company. I had three men in my team, a four man team. And I was a sergeant and I trained those three men. There was a platoon sergeant. Uh, with us, but he got hurt. So I was made platoon sergeant. And we went off to Panama and uh, Virgin Isles and different places. We went, to, we went to the Jungle Warfare School in Panama, run by Special Forces. And uh, we went to as many schools we could get to. And uh, then we sent guys off to jump school. I'd already been to a lot of these schools, but I'm trying to train my guys and be with them. So we trained for a long time. And uh, we had to weed out the guys who couldn't make it. You know, that was not for everybody. Had to teach them demolitions and, you know, and it was just a hard-nosed unit. They had to run everywhere they went. We worked until 2200 every night, 10 o'clock, before we went to Vietnam. Now, once we 
call out the guys who weren't going to make it. We end up with six platoons, all qualified guys. We got those guys, some from the Army, Navy, and from the Marine Corps at a great unit with a company, a couple hundred men. We decided that we couldn't take all six platoons to Vietnam. So the commander picked two platoons that would go first and get us started. Then he would bring the other four platoon over in 30 days. Unfortunately, that never happened. Uh, I was picked with the first platoon. Lieutenant O'Donnell took the fifth platoon and Captain Jordan was the detachment commander. He was a young guy that uh, couldn't swim. Nice enough fellow, but he was the wrong pick for the, for, the, for the job. And I was a grizzly old platoon sergeant and uh, O'Donnell had the fifth platoon, just a wonderful guy. He got killed halfway through the mission, shot in the heart and his, his platoon did well. I picked up his platoon uh, after he was killed and we got another lieutenant in to replace him. Uh, so we did pretty well, but I was still pretty much in, in command because Captain Jordan had gotten transferred. And I was running uh, patrols with the 5th platoon, which was my platoon. And after I got commissioned, I'm now pretty senior, so I'm running the whole detachment after Jordan was gone. And I was still running my patrols plus running the detachment. And then we went on a very dangerous mission. You asked about some of the ones that were dangerous. Yeah. They sent us out to find a B-57 aircraft, which had crashed in the mountains. Air survey uh, was a very large aircraft, and it was outfitted to carry a nuclear bomb. So the Air Force wanted it back. And my colonel called me in and gave me the mission. And I took uh, whatever I could scrounge. Sergeant Yerman was in the hospital at that time, so I couldn't take him. So I took a couple of guys. I had about six men, including myself. So they dropped us in. We were supposed to parachute in, but the chopper put us in about 10 feet above uh, in the kunai grass, elephant grass. We had to drop down there. It wasn't really that far. And then uh, we checked the aircraft. We were looking for the pilots or anything that we could find. Didn't find anything nuclear. I'd been in nuclear biological and chemical warfare school. So I pretty much knew what to, a matter of fact, I would say I was an undergraduate there. That was a long time ago, but I knew what to look for. They were supposed to pick me up the next day. So they dropped us in and said, it's a one day mission, get the information, we'll pick up the next day. Unfortunately, uh, the monsoon season came and they, they couldn't, choppers couldn't fly. So I had to tell my guys, we can stay here and take our chance. We were behind enemy lines, of course. And I didn't know whether the aircraft had been shot down or what, uh, or whether they jettisoned the nuclear bombs if they had any on there. Uh, all that area out there was rice paddies and flat flat grand, ground. During the monsoon, uh, if I was a pilot, I would have probably disarmed it if I had one and jettisoned it so it into the uh, rice paddies. That was a possibility. But we didn't find anything on the aircraft. But we never knew. Nobody ever told us whatever happened, if it was armed or what they did with the nuclear weapons. But the, the chopper, there was not, not much left. I had to tell my guys, listen, they're not going to come pick us up. I got to make a decision. We can stay here, take our chances, or we can try to get home. I knew where home was. And I took out my compass and my map and my point man, and I told him to take us home. And he stood up adjusting his pack, and he, we started going home. 
Five days later, we got home. Took us 10 miles to get home. We crossed two rivers, had to go through two minefields. Along the way, one of my men dropped out and he just fell on the ground and said, I can't make it, I can't go any further. I said, yes, you can. I picked him up and pushed him up the hill. So I'll kill you first before I leave you behind. You know, one of those things you say, but wow. you know, pushed him up the hill. I wasn't gonna leave anybody behind. And we went through enemy territory. We swam that river. You know, we were to get around the, you know, the bouncing bettys, got through one minefield. Then my scout found another one. Then we got into a firefight from the right. Didn't hurt us bad because didn't lose anybody. And then we finally got to the point where the trucks had come from uh, Fubai to pick us up. So we're out there for uh, five days, no food, no water, and didn't lose a man. It was a tough mission. It was kind of scary. Facing down a full-grown tiger and those type of things. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was that like? I got a glimpse of him, but Dorosky, my point man, he stopped the patrol and held us up. And we thought, well, we're going to be in contact in a minute, so I was getting ready for that. He finally moved us forward, and I asked him, uh, what was it? He said, a full-grown tiger. Uh, he didn't make a move, and the tiger backed away. Wow. But those are things that we, I come back with 34 leeches on my body, dangerous territory. We knew the NBA was out. That was their territory. And uh, some of the younger guys I had with me, you know, I'm sure they wondered, if we were going to make it home, but I, they believed in me and they figured I would, uh, we'd get out of the situation we were in. But five days is a long time in enemy territory with no food, no water. Those uh, endurance moments that your yeah. uh, father taught you yeah. growing up as a kid yeah. were making their way to the battlefield yeah. of Vietnam. Yeah. What do you remember about the, about the bullets flying? Did the training just kick in in those moments when you came into contact with the enemy and you came into situations like that? What do you remember you about pretty, those? Pretty much ignored them. Yeah. Bullets flying all around, you know. <laughs> well, we had to. You know, when you're in command, you can't worry about your own personal safety. You're aware of it. But uh, my team was trained as a team. I would be the first one to open fire. Then everybody knew what they were supposed to do. I had an M79, man. I had a M60 machine gun. Each one of the men carried a... One carried a shotgun. We carried M16s or M14s. I would open fire. They could set off a claymore. We had it. Tra we trained to uh, make sure if we were up against usually 30 or 40 guys, that was a small enemy platoon or company, and we would catch them in a crossfire. Then a heavy machine gun would go down the long axis. Then each man would throw a grenade. They'd alternate throwing a hand grenade. You fire maybe half a magazine and you throw a hand grenade and uh, you'd catch them. It worked smoothly. So they didn't really get a chance to get off much, much fire at us because we were, then we would smoke it sometimes too. We would, we would smoke the uh, ambush site and they would panic and sometimes they'd run into us. It was violent. Some of my guys said some things that had nothing to do with the mission, enjoyed the, uh, the blood site. I wondered sometimes about were they getting to the point where they lost their humanity. It was sometimes, to me, you can never get too violent in a situation like this. We killed, I think, 23 that day. On the way back, nobody laughed. Nobody pat themselves on the back.
but it was just stoic, you know, and I had that thousand yards there. This is at Quezon, which is a very nasty place. So we were sent out to hold the enemy back and run patrols and drop artillery on them and airstrikes on them to keep them from attacking the base. So we had maybe seven or eight guys in the dog, and that's what we did day after day. Mm. We'd come in for a couple of days, get resupplied, and we'd go back out, mostly at night. It was so violent, and I didn't want them to get too used to killing because I, we're going to have to shut this down at some point. Right. I, want, I don't want you to take this home. Mm. Let's, let's lead this war here. But unfortunately, we got home. The citizens brought it to us. They reminded us. They called us baby killers. They called us nasty things and, you know, a whole bit. But we were doing what the commander-in-chief wanted us to do. Marines are that greed. When the president says go, we saddle up, we go. We don't care if it's Republican or Democrat. Eisenhower sent me to war when I was 18 years old. Never questioned it. Never even thought about it. When he says go, we go. I went to war on a Kennedy. You know, I went to war on a Nixon. I got a personal letter from President Nixon for another mission when he was on his way to China in 1972. He was the first American president to go to China. And my wife and I had happened to be in Hawaii at the time where he landed. And my job was to make sure he didn't get killed. Uh, he stayed on our base. And I was the captain then. And I did the best I could. And at the end, end of my mission, he sent me a personal letter. Uh, thanks for helping me out a whole bit. I never met him. Come pretty close because he lived in the general's house. And my job was to protect it. You know, protect him while he was there. Kissinger was there. Secretary of State Rogers was there. Kissinger was not the Secretary of State at that time. Okay. He was charge of Security Council, I think it was. Bright man. One wow. funny thing about Kissinger, he wouldn't go anywhere without a light to read by. So the vehicle, we had a man, didn't have a, a reading light in the car. And he wouldn't go in it. We had to get him a reading light. He would read every, he always had something in his hand to read, no matter what he was reading. The president wanted to go out and swim for a minute in the beach. So we had to make sure we got him out in the beach. Then we had guys in the mountains up there, snipers in the mountains, protecting him. We had Coast Guard boats out there while the president swam. So I was a part of all of that. Wow. We had the CIA, the FBI was there with our team, State Department security. So we had everybody there, State Department, Secret Service, and the FBI and CIA. Wow. And I was the guy running the base assets. Pretty nice mission for a captain. That is a pretty nice mission. Yeah. <laughs> so back to Vietnam, yeah. you were on, how, how many missions had you been on when that fateful mission came up that, you know, where you were wounded 19 times? That was the last mission. Okay. And we've been there since day one. And it's hard to say how many missions we ran. You can, there are people said, 50, 60. As far as Marine missions, we probably ran about 60 on the ground and enemy territory. We usually go out for four or five days, do the mission, come back for two days, get cleaned up, clean our weapons, and then we go back out again. Uh, there are some that said we were there for over 100 missions, but that might have been for the whole detachment. Two platoons in a, went over, then a third platoon came over, I think in June or July, beefed us up, but they were sent down to Marble Mountain so we pulled them up north where I was. I took over that platoon. 
And while we were on the special landing force with another officer named Judge Spainauer, good looking guy, giant, about six feet four, cut out of a recruiting model. And he, his platoon was from the 5th Recon Battalion, but we all worked together. Judd got killed on, that, on his mission. Wasn't too far from me. He bled to death. So I took over his platoon. They had no officer. I wasn't an officer at that time, but I took over his platoon. So I commanded Judd Spann's platoon, I called it, commanded the 3rd Platoon. They had a platoon leader who left at Quezon. So I had that platoon. But I had good NCOs, which I had known from stateside, stateside. Then I commanded O'Donnell's platoon when he got killed. I took over, took over his. They pretty much lost it. Good guys, but they loved O'Donnell. Great man, good Christian, and they wanted vengeance. I had to sort of settle them down. Same thing with uh, Spain House platoon. I had to talk to those guys and say, we got a long ways to go, fellas. You know, no vengeance now. We'll take it out in the battlefield. But they started drinking pretty heavily. And, and I was a sergeant, wasn't an officer that, at that time. But they knew me. They trusted me. And they knew I was sincere. Got it done. They all calmed down. Quit the foolishness. And uh, you allowed two drinks, two beers a day, I think it was. But they found ways to scrounge other stuff and got in a scuffle with other units and put a clamper on that. No, we're not going to have it. You, you're desecrating the memory of these fine officers. And I knew them all. I loved them all. I wasn't a, really a, an officer. I was just a staff NCO trying to fill in the, the gaps until we got a real officer in. Mm-hmm. They commissioned me and made me a second lieutenant in five minutes. What do you, what do you, were you glad to be to receive that commission, or did you not care either way? Did it not matter to you either way? Well, I was glad because I had put in for it for years ago, and they turned me down. I put it for commission twice. Wow. I was qualified, but they said considered but not selected. Mm. But you figure back in those days, they weren't looking that hard for black officers. Right. Yeah. But when I got commissioned at Fubai, I'm telling you, uh, it was a good day for my guys because I'd been there with them from day one. Started with them, and now we're pretty close to getting our tour, leaving our tour in Vietnam. Mm. But they had an officer. I'd make sure they got their mail, make sure they got paid, make sure they got fed properly. I did the things that I knew should be done because the guys, they trusted me and they supported me and they helped me out a lot. Like Sergeant Yerman, he went from corporal to sergeant. He said two bronze stars with combat Vs, two purple hearts. He was with me when we got on the aircraft. Wow. So, uh, you know, I had some good help from the enlisted guys. Plus, I'd been an enlisted man myself, but we fought all over Vietnam. We fought four amphibious landings up north, just below the DMZ. That was four landings, and each of them last sometimes five or ten days. Come back to the ship, tend tend to the wounded, ship the dead back home, then came south and fought some of the bloodiest battles you want to think about. I think Quezon was kind of tough because we spent three months up there fighting in the foxholes and running patrols and dodging rockets. Bloody battle in Quezon. Were they well equipped up there? Yeah, that was a 324th B Division. They came down. Uh, they were trying to take Quezon. The French had lost it in 1954 when they lost Dembe and Fu, that whole area up there. 
And they thought they would run the Americans out, but they didn't realize Marines were there. <laughs> At night, you'd hear them with the uh, loudspeakers. American Yankees, you go home. Psychological warfare. They had a lady named Hanoi Hannah, and she'd be broadcasting. Uh, Marines, you die when they play some kind of silly music. And they would say, Yankees, go home. And, you know, the guys were hearing that, but some of my guys would say some unrepeatable language directed <laughs> to a Hanoi Hannah. Uh. They would come through, through the lines. They'd come up to the lines, and they had a group called Sappers. And the Sappers would blow themselves up and blow holes in the barbed wire. Oh, wow. And then their guys would run through, uh, blowing horns or bugles, and, and they'd come in. And, of course, our guys were in foxholes with trenching tools. And they would attack the guys coming through. It was, and they had the we had the uh, the flares coming down, and the flares would lighten up the battlefield so we could see them. It was surreal, all the explosions going on, and the flares floating down, moving. Things are moving around. There are human beings dying, screaming and yelling. You know that was the time when we had to hold on. You're not going to run us out of here. We knew about Iwo Jima. We knew about Tawa. You know, we grew up learning about Chosen Reservoir. You don't run Marines out, you know, and these are a lot of young guys, too. And even though they're coming in and dropping rockets and things on us, no, we're, I can't say we weren't scared. But for those young guys that pick up these entrenching tools and run towards them and come and get me, come get some. And that was a proud moment. Uh, I saw nobody run for the front lines. I saw not one Marine back up and, and, and try to go to the rear. They were all going forward to try to stop the NVA from coming through. And they were coming through, hopped up on opium and blowing bugles and all of this. Close combat. At night, when you got your buddy there, you're invincible. They, they can't do this. You can't run me out of here. No, no, no. You know, we stay in. I got my buddy here. And with those entrenching tools, because it was close combat and you can't fire an automatic weapon because you go, you know, but it was kind of crazy. And the guys fought on the lines all night long, the CBs, the Army, the, you know, the corpsmen, the Marines, was all together. And during the morning, about 2, 3 o'clock, they would start restringing the barbed wire, taking care of the wounded. And uh, it was like nothing happened that night. Wow. Uh, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. We'll do it t tonight. We'll do it the next night. Marines don't quit. How many nights in a row did that go for? I was there for three months. Oh, wow. Now, it didn't happen every night for three months, but the threat of it was there. Right. We had a good news because, like, uh, IQ earlier, who was a cook during the war in Iraq. That's your son, right? Yeah, he's my godson. He's not my, yeah, well, he's my son, like all of them, you know. Mm -hmm. But he's a good guy, and um, he told me about uh, the work that the cooks and bakers did in Iraq. I remembered when we had a base at a place called Dung Ha, which was over 30-some miles from Quezon, and when the threat of us almost getting overrun, those Marines and sailors, they formed a group, and they took the cooks and the bakers the corpsmen, the typewriters, typewriter guy, which is called Remington Raiders. And they got on those six by trucks 
They picked up rifles and grenades and they fought their way all the way to Quezon. Sometime the trucks they had was blown up and some kind of way they walked and ran all the way to Quezon. When I, I'm told, and they, I didn't hear the I didn't hear the horns, but those guys who were not grunts, they came in blowing the horns of those vehicles. We're here to save you grunts and recon guys. <laughs> they got out of their vehicles and fought on the lines because each Marine is a basic rifleman anyway. That's the first thing you learn, you know, like in the army, you know, you learn to fire a rifle. And they came up to Quezon and they fought like infantrymen. And after a day or so, they got back in their vehicles and went back to Quezon, uh, back to Dung Ha, and they got more guys. See, we didn't have enough troops up there to hold off a whole division. Right. They came up, and had it not been for those guys, I think, I'm not, I'm not quite sure if we had enough strength up there. They eventually brought in a whole regiment. They had a hard time, but it was just guys like Recon and the CBs and Pioneers that held on until the regular guys, you know, the regiments could come in and dig in and hold off those that two divisions up there against us. But I was appreciated and I quit kidding the cooks and the bakers. And, you know, we'd call those guys the, the, the office clerks. <laughs> they put sandbags under the seats because, you know, a lot of those trucks were blown up by, like now they roadside bombs, but back in those days, uh, they had same stuff in Vietnam. So they put these sandbags under the seats so when a bomb hit the truck, you know, they wouldn't hit them too bad. They were good guys. So those are the things that I saw that warmed my heart. Mm. Wow. Yeah, all fighting yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. One force. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. You don't think about that probably as a recon man being up there, you know, and going on some of the secret missions. But when yeah. you got to hold that big space of caisson, you know, yeah. massive area then you kind of need that. You need every man you can get your own, especially when they when the NBA come in in mass mm, yeah. in force. Was that last night, your last mission, your scariest as far as, you know, as far as getting wounded? Don't remember being scared to the point where I couldn't function. Maybe a lot of reasons. I mean, it wasn't that. I think if anybody tells you he wasn't scared, he's, he's probably lying. But, I mean, I was aware of what was going on, and I saw people die and hit here and there, and... uh I was always able to overcome that fear, do what I needed to do to take care of my men. After one of the missions at Quezon, I think I uh, was trying to get my guys reorganized. Quezon was basically a fort. I was an officer at that time. I saw this corpsman. It was still dark. You know, the fighting was, they were more or less retreating and we were taking care of a wounded and whatever. And I said, Doc, uh, I'm going to need you. You need to come with me. He was a corpsman, young guy. He said, yes, sir. You don't wear any rank in battle. You didn't, I had no bars on, but he knew I was an officer. He said, yes, sir. I, so we came around this little curve or whatever it was there. The corpsman said to me, Tenant, uh, I'm just a little tired. Can I sit down for a minute? I said, yeah, Doc. Uh, I think they're either done or they won't come back for a while. Yeah, go ahead and sit down. We were waiting for a second attack. Sometime they came back, sometime they didn't. But uh, you're prepared anyway. You know, you're getting everything ready for another attack until at least sun, the sun comes up. Korma was sitting there. We heard the bugles, not loud. I said, Doc, uh, look like uh, they might be coming again. The doc says, you know, I'm a little tired, sir. And I said, we're going to need, I'm going to need you, Doc. Doc didn't answer. Doc died right there at my feet. And I didn't know the kid had been hit. He didn't, he didn't say anything. 
Wow. He said he didn't. He just said, "I'm just a little tired. Can I sit down for a few minutes?" And he didn't get up. And I didn't know that he was wounded. It was at night. He didn't cry. He didn't cry out. He didn't. He just sat there and died at my feet. Then I blamed myself because I should have known. What a man! Then I wondered to myself, "I'm an officer now. I'm supposed to take care of these guys." And I didn't know. Then the battle started again. And it just seemed like it never ended. Wow. Never ended. How did you move past those moments? You don't you don't move past those moments. I see mm-hmm. him today. I'm still there. I still see him sitting there. Uh, when I give a speech, sometimes I have an empty chair there for that young corman. Mm-hmm. You know, because I didn't forget him. I don't forget those guys. I'm not expected to. And at, at my age now, well, my 82 years old, soon to be 83, and those battles are so vivid in my mind and my memory, it awakens me at night. And I spent a year in a hospital in Bethesda, and it was tough there because the battles that I fought were so brutal and so uh, heart-wrenching for the other guys, too. I didn't feel much sympathy for those guys, but I know their families must have hurt as bad as my families did. So I grieved for the whole war then. It was beginning to you know, to dawn on me that what is the point of this war? But I admired my young guys. I grieve for them. I still today in my backyard out there, I've got crosses and the names of all of the men that I lost in my unit. Wow. They're brass, brass names that my wife and I put up there and we built a memorial back there and they're still back there of all of the men that we lost. Even my war dog's name is on there because I cared for those guys. I loved them. I trained them and I felt responsibility for them. What I meant was earlier when I said, how did you move through? was how did you keep fighting when you experienced Because I promised those guys, you will let me down before I let you down. I'm here with you. I will never, I will never leave you. And I didn't. I went all the way through them to the last battle. I was the last man to get on a helicopter the last mission in Fulop. I went to see the mother of one of the guys, one of the first guys were killed, a young man named Stanley, the one that almost drowned in the river. I went to see her and uh, to tell her how sorry I was I didn't bring her son home. And she forgave me, but I felt so much guilt. I went on the way to Boston and spent the day with her. I was hurt. You know, but What's it like talking to a mom in that? It was hard. Yeah. It was hard. Mrs. Scanlon, she's a nice lady, Irish family. And after I spent the dinner with her, I told her that I had to leave that vehicle that would pick up the next day. And I was staying at a hotel around the corner. And so I went over to a little little bar. It wasn't a little bar, but it was pretty good size. They had a big fireplace there, giant fireplace with logs burning and a bunch of Irish guys in there. And they were all half drunk and singing Irish songs. I mean, they were really just having a great time. I was sitting there. I had my uniform on because I'd gone to see Mr. Scanlon, just thinking how far I'd come. And uh, I was the only black guy in there. I was a Marine officer. And one of the guys from the table that they were singing and carrying on came over and says, hey, sir, are you alone? I said, yeah, I come to visit one of my casualties' family. They said, oh, we're so sorry, but 
you're a Marine, aren't you? I said, yes, sir, I'm a Marine. He said, well, why don't you come over and join us? We're just having fun. And I said, well, no, I really don't feel like tonight. It's been a long day, you know. They said, well, you can, he asked. I said, okay. And they all came over to my table, the whole damn table come over. They all sitting there singing. <laughs> they were singing that, still drunk. You know, you know, Irish eyes are smiling. You know, uh, you know, and some of the good old art, which I had learned in school. And I tried to sing a few songs. It was it was a good night. And it was such great guys. They thanked me for what we're doing in, in, in Vietnam. They just, you know, it was a pleasant evening when I was really sad. Now I'm cheered up. I mean, some of those Irish songs, uh, and they they were drunk and they weren't good singers, but it was fun being with them. <laughs> and uh, they made my night. The big fire was it was kind of chilly, and a big fire was burning, and they were all in there having a good time. Wow. And I said goodbye, and then I uh, went to the hotel, spent the night. Next morning, my driver came and picked me up. I was going overseas, mm. going to Europe for a year. Wow. Mm-hmm. So do you ran missions in Vietnam with the CIA? You worked with them? Well, we did the POW mission. That was uh, mm. the president authorized that, President Johnson. Sanctioned by him. And uh, the CIA, they found a, a prisoner named Lap. He was 18 or 19 years old. He was a prison guard, and it had American POWs in it. So somewhere along the line, they thought that he wasn't treating the Americans we had some Australians there and 26 South Vietnamese. That was the POW camp. So Lap escaped and the CIA picked him up, brought him to us. And he was eventually brought to me for safekeeping. So he stayed in my tent with me for safekeeping. But before uh, we went out, I, a lot of that is on the film. I threatened him, you know, let him know that if you, any kind of way or lying to us said how I'd kill him, but I missed that now. Nice kid. Uh, he, we took him on the, the mission with us. He fought with us. I got him in the aircraft, didn't leave him behind. Uh, we didn't get the POWs, sad part of the mission. Mm. I got my first Purple Heart, my first Bronze Star there. Wow. Now that mission is being looked at for the Medal of Honor. Wow. Mm-hmm. That mission as well. Yeah. Wow. What did you, did you come upon a camp? Were you able to find the camp? We found the camp. Them? Yeah, and they we found there. the camp, and we killed the guards. Mm. But there were no POWs there. Wow. So obviously, we blew the camp, tore it down. Yeah. They'll never have another American prisoner there. We had a fight with the guards, and then the chopper that come to pick us up couldn't land because of the you know, the jungle. Mm. So we had to, they had to drop a horse. We had a you've been in the army, you know how you do that, you know. Yes, sir. So old ranger and raider stuff so each man had to go up there by horse mm. and Yerman and I were the last ones on the ground and he didn't want to go up he wanted he want to <laughs> stay on the ground me to go up and he stay on the ground and fight him off Yerman's a little stubborn <laughs> yeah I said no 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 you know so he went up and then it seemed like forever before the chopper the horse come back down I'm on the ground hooking and jabbing I can see him running across this and I was Doing the best I could, I was throwing as many grenades and firing as much as I could because they were trying to shoot down the chopper. The rest of my men was in the, in the uh, the forty six. I killed as many as I could, and when I looked up, the chop the horse wasn't coming down. Wow! Apparently, the pilot 
thought that when Yerman got on board, he was the last man. Uh, and Yerman went up to tell the pilot, hey, listen, you still got a man, lieutenant still on the ground. You can't leave. And then there was discussion about the fuel and whatever it was. And Yerman insisted with his rifle, no, you're not going to leave him on the ground. So then the horse started coming down. And I looked up. My guys had broken the windows out of the chopper and was firing around to cover me. Wow. Shell casings were dropping. And uh, they were trying to cover me. And I was firing as much as I could. And I still had plenty of ammunition. But one of the guys saw me fall. I hit a clump of dirt. And I stumbled. And one of the guys thought I was hit, but I wasn't, wasn't hit at that time. Mm. I didn't get hit till uh, you know I got the horse around me. Usually it takes two men. You, one man standing, the other guy put the horse around him. But this time I had only God. That was a good story. I believe that even though there was nobody physically there to help me out, God was standing with me and helped me put that horse on because wow. there was no way I could have done it by myself. Wow. And I this was a good God story. You know, when people wonder about is God real. I explained how I got up in that helicopter. Somebody tell me how I did that and, and who helped me put this horse on with all the gear I had on and uh, everything was going on. I got this hoist on and started on the way up and the, and the, the horse stopped. Oh no. So I think, yes, what I said, <laughs> I didn't say exactly that, but I said the other words, some other choice yeah. words. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. Some Wait military minute. words. And I figured I'm, I'm spinning around up there and everybody's firing. God, I'm dying, gone to hell now. But I, when I got up to, close to the chopper, I got hit. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bleeding all over the place. And, but wow. they pulled me in. I was hit in the face. And it was a bleeder. Oh, wow. And I looked down. It was you know, blood everywhere. And they laid me down. And my corpsman, who was with me, he was the Navy SEAL that was with me on the diving mission, patched me up. They took off and took me home, took us back to our base camp. It was a sad thing because I didn't get the POWs because yeah. I had rehearsed that. My name is Lieutenant Jim Capers. I come and take you home. Wow. Didn't get to say those words. And then, you know, when the war was over 74, 75, the POWs came home. I wondered if my POWs made it. Wow. The last mission came up, Hulak. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about that? That was a, that was a battle at night, right? Four days. Four days. Wow. Wow. Four days. We killed 20 the second day. Wow. What were those four days like? We had contact every day. Mm. Firefight every day. Mm. I lost one man the first day. Mm. He got hit in the head and we shipped him out, medevaced him. The chop had to land, take him out. Yeah. And then uh, they dropped me some more ammunition because uh, I didn't realize it was going to be that big of a fight. But I had 10 men and I had my machine gun with me and I had plenty of... Uh, grenades and stuff. So we, we, you know, they came at us and we took them out. We were, we were very good at that time. This is in April, April of 67. And we landed in April of 66. So by that time, we had, of course, I had change of personnel, you know, got some new guys in, but that team I had out there, we, we took it to them. Four days of fighting. Hmm. And there were how many of you out there? 10. 10. Wow. Mm -hmm. And my war dog. Yeah. Your war dog was with you. Mm -hmm. yeah. King. It was King. King. Yeah, mm -hmm. I saw that. I was reading yesterday. Yeah. What were the what were the actions that led to that nomination? I know you've spoken about that moment a lot, but I want this particular audience to hear about that. Well, this is Fulot. Okay, oh, Fulot. Yes. yes, sir. Yeah, well, when I got the mission, we went out to a group called a Combined Action Company. And these guys were sent out to live in the villages 
to win the hearts and minds of the villagers. They come over to American side and lived out there and educated them. And they were on patrols with them to help them protect the, the army had the green berets out there doing that. We had the Marines out there doing that. It was a concept that win the hearts and minds. I'm not sure who'll come up with it, but instead of going out there fighting hard, we want them to come onto our side. Well, we're always fighting hard, but we got out there with the, uh, the cat guys and we out there that night and we left that camp there. These were the guys, the cat guys and been out, live out there. So we were now going to take care of the guys who were attacking the villages and a whole bit. And plus we were supposed to blow a NVA base camp was on the reverse side of the mountain. That base camp was there to provide food and other kind of administrative services. And it was on the reverse side of the mountain. You couldn't see it from our side, but our spies told us it was there. They were building up to attack Way City and they did attack it the next year, 68. But we were supposed to slow them down. That was my mission. So I went out there and, and I walked in with a group of grunts. Is it 326? There's a lot of controversy in terms of what somebody said to me. And I just, Yerman said, the captain said this, said that I, I let them tell that story because I was more or less taking care of the battles. We walked through uh, around a uh, rice paddy that night when we left the cat base and all hell broke loose. Traces, every fifth round, of course, of tracing, it was just all over the place. And I didn't let my guys get engaged because they were fighting against another group and I did, wasn't quite sure who they were. So I skirted them, skirted all that, you know, uh, the bullets that was flying. And so I harborsided, held up in a graveyard and a graveyard was like a you know, Vietnamese graveyard, had a lot of seamen out there and spent the night in that graveyard because I figured if we got hit, we could be protected by some of the concrete out there. So we spent the night out there and watched the fight. Then when the sun came up, we saw a group of Marines coming up. So we linked up with them. They didn't know we were there. We didn't open fire with them, but they, you know, we're not seen very easily. You know, plus I got a dog with me. So they figured we were there. So we escorted them and uh, we fought with them for the four days we had contact. They had contact also, uh, but there was a lot at three rifle companies and, and a battalion of artillery, or maybe a company of artillery. They saw us looking like we look as recon guys, you know. When we go out, we look kind of scary, mm -hmm. and, and the dog. So uh, we went on by ourselves and, and got in, in many contacts, and in, the infantry did what they were supposed to do, but we guided them in to the battle area. And then, you know, after we fought our way to Fulak, there was a larger group of NVA set off a couple of claymores. And that's when all of us got hit. I was hit a bunch of times. As you know, my right leg was broken. My left leg was fractured. And, you know. This came from claymore contact? Or, yeah. And, or... and, 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 you know, they fired. Obviously, when they set off the claymore, I still had bullet fragments uh, in my legs and my thigh. And uh, but they did a good job taking care of me. But it was a nasty battle. We killed so many of them. They kept coming. Yerman come crawling over to me. He'd been hit, and all my guys were hit. My dog was dead. And Yerman said, uh, we're all hit, sir. We can still fight, but we can't go forward. And that's when I made the decision to, I dropped everything we had on our position. 
because I had my map out and called the artillery and I figured, well, we're in trouble. But I knew that the artillery guys would give us 50 meters grace. They wouldn't drop it right on us. So I gambled and they dropped all kind of stuff. Then the phantoms came in and blew the reverse side of the mountain. So that was a plus for us. It was hard because there was artillery all over the place. Everybody was bleeding and yelling and screaming. And uh, Stanton, my M79 man, he got hit. Uh, he lost a kidney. And he fell back on me. He's bleeding from the mouth and the nose. And I reached around him to take his dog. I think he was dead, really. Take his dog tags off. And then he was just nothing but blood. He said, uh, I can still fight, sir. Give me a rifle. One of the greatest things I've ever heard. Wow. But uh, he was bleeding. And, uh, you know, because my guys always know that in our line of work, we have to keep the fire going. We can't get overrun. Those who are too severely wounded, the corporal won't treat them. Harsh as it seems, the Lincoln treat the guys that can still fight. And that's when Stanton says, give me a rifle, sir. I can still fight. And I gave him an M14, and he started fighting. Broke my heart. He's one of the ones that, that wrote the letter, a witness statement for the Battle of Fula. And Sergeant Yerman wrote the other one. That's for the Medal of Honor. Well, I deserved it not, you know, it didn't really matter. But I did the best I could. Crapo, who passed away last year. He was my other radio man. My corner was hit. Nicola lost a leg. Wow. It was a scramble, you know, to get everybody out of there, put out enough fire, and uh, get evacuated. Bloody battle. I was hurt real bad, obviously, in my groin and the whole bit. So how brave my guys was. They wouldn't have captured us because they would, would fight. How did you get out of that? We walked to the, air, we walked to the airstrip, um, to the evacuation site. Wow. We had to walk. We carried help and carried each other. How'd you make it? Just hard. I was blood was squishing out of my boot. Mm. They gave me a shot of my corpsman. They gave me a shot of morphine. When you talk about the, the race situation, mm. I'm a black officer, and my corpsman was a white guy from from Alabama, and he ran through whatever hostile fire and jumped on me, and gave me a shot of morphine. He didn't see a black guy there, but that's who we are. That's what we do. He said, stay down, sir. Stay down. You're hit. Well, I knew I was hit. He said, don't get up. And I had to get up because we had to fight. But the idea of him running, risking his life to jump on me, he, he passed away a few years ago, too. When we went down to the SEAL base to get the Silver Star and this award, Yerman showed up. Jack Wright got a bronze star. He wasn't with my team, but I wrote him up anyway because I heard what he did with O'Donnell's platoon, and I was the only officer left, so I wrote up some awards for other guys in other platoons. But uh, we went to Tampa Bay. Yerman was there. Crapo was there. The kid who my dog handling, he was there. There was only five of us there, and all got bronze stars. I got a silver star. Uh, now they want to upgrade that to Medal of Honor, but that's what I got then. And uh, Bill was there with me. Of course, Yerman was there. He got a He'd already got a bronze star for the POW mission. Wow! And you've been nominated eight mm -hmm. times, right, for the Medal of Honor? Well, they, they looked at it over eight times. I'm told. Right, reviewed. Yeah. yeah. What do you think the issue is with that, and why? I'm not Mr. Personality. <laughs> you see, that doesn't seem to be true to me. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of guys. In 1966, when I got commissioned, I, yeah. I was the first black officer in the history of recon or special operations 
and nobody really knew me. And there were a lot of folks thought they just promoted him because he's black. Well, affirmative action don't work in combat. You pick the best guy you can pick. Uh, a few years ago, the Recon Association picked the best officer in the history of reconnaissance, and they picked me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They picked the best team leader, the best corpsman, the best communicator, and, you know, and I was picked the best officer. I was proud of that. So there's obviously something going on and some... Some guy's jealous of me. Yeah. There yeah. were some guys who didn't come to my wife's funeral. They didn't come to my son's funeral. Wow. They didn't come to Tampa with us. You know, I'm not an easy guy to get along with because back in those days, I'm not a yes, sir, no, sir type of guy. Mm. I did my job best I could, but there were a lot of guys who didn't see me in the same light as they saw a lot of white officers. I didn't go to OCS. I didn't go to college. You mentioned you're getting your master's. I never got a master's. I went to high school. I got the, my education came. I went to amphibious warfare school in the Marine Corps, and I went to the University of Maryland at night when I was stationed at Fort Meade. I went there and studied psychology and English and whatever else it was, and I was close to getting a degree, and the war started, and I volunteered to go to Vietnam. I never matriculated, so when I got home, I started again, and things that we're talking about today, I was dreaming about, mm. so I couldn't couldn't concentrate, so I never got a degree at the University of Maryland, so when I, my wife and I were stationed in Hawaii, and I went to the University of Shamanah University. And after I retired, I was vice president with Jefferson Pilot Corporation, and they sent me to Harvard School, Harvard Business School. So I had that education. I got a lot of stuff there, but I never matriculated. I never gave, I never got a degree. You know, I would, with my line of work, I was overseas 11 years, and it was just so hard for me to, to get a degree. I thought one day I'd like to go back and, <laughs> and get a degree, but I never was able to do that. Wow. Hey, everyone. Tim K here. Sorry for the interruption, but uh, obviously an incredible podcast. Part one of the podcast on Major James Capers Jr., a legend of the Marine reconnaissance community. We are headed into part two next week on the 10th in the interim. Check out the Marine Reconnaissance Foundation and all they have going on. Uh, we will provide the links in the description. Thank you for tuning in to part one, part two next week. Don't miss it. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.